Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. We're back to a normal schedule with a contributor episode this week. And before that, I just wanted to mention that the winner for the 2018 Board Game Workshop Design Contest has been announced. I mentioned it on Twitter if you saw it, but Calligraphy by Eric J. Francis ended up being the winner. It was a great contest. Uh, thank you so much for everyone who entered, all of the judges who helped out. Um, it was a lot of fun. I think it went really well. Definitely learned some things about it. I wrote a postmortem about it over on Blue Cube Board Games, if you want to check that out. And I'll definitely be having another one this year. Uh, once things settle down a bit and I get ready to set it up, we'll try to get it a little earlier so it doesn't hit the holidays quite so hard. It was kind of rough scheduling at the end there. So look forward to that. And as I said, this is a contributor episode, but we only have two contributors for this one. So if you're interested and want to do a one-time segment or a continuing segment, just email me at chris at theboardgameworkshop.com, or you can find me on Twitter at the BG Workshop and let me know what your idea is, and we can probably work something out. So in this episode, Eric talks about why board games are becoming more popular in the digital era, and Bill talks about starting a design. Now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Eric J. Francis. I'm a journalist and a board game designer, and I've recently been looking into why board games are becoming more popular during the digital era. I wanted to know if people were looking for a retreat from the 24-7 digital culture, or if there were other reasons that this analog hobby was reaching a new golden age in the midst of a digital revolution. So I interviewed gamers, designers, academics, writers, and entrepreneurs to get their takes on this question. For an article in the online magazine Technoskeptic, I spoke to Aaron Tramnell, the editor-in-chief of the Analog Game Studies Journal, and yes, there really is a scholarly journal full of research-heavy articles on tabletop games. Tramnell, whose favorite game is Galaxy Trucker, by the way, doesn't think that analog and digital are opposites. Instead, what he says is they're birds of a feather. Here's his take. For me, the important thing when we talk about digital and analog is the degree in which these terms are construed to have a binary relationship, not necessarily oppositional. They developed and grow hand in hand. One example that he gave was Sid Meier's Civilization, which was ported from a video game to a board game, and then back to a video game, and then back to a board game. For Tramnell, the bigger question was why board games have been obscured for such a long time. Here's what he said. There have always been thriving board game communities. Evergreens like Cosmic Encounter have been around since the 1970s. There's Magic the Gathering. We're in an explosion right now, and the question is, why have these been neglected so long? I don't have an answer for that. One person I talked with who sought that answer is journalist David Sachs, whose 2016 book, The Revenge of Analog, devotes an entire chapter to board games. For his part, Sachs, who loves the card game Kigi, sees a pushback to the impersonal aspects of digital interaction and says that places like the Snakes and Lattes board game cafe in Toronto are a remedy to what he calls an epidemic of loneliness that has proliferated in the developed world. Here's what he told me. These board game cafes, like Snakes and Lattes, have really become the kind of hub of social interaction, of friendship, of community. 
with something like board games, the games are kind of, hey, let's do this thing. It's just a bunch of cardboard, but we'll get to see each other and talk to each other and feel a sense of belonging to a group. That resonates with what board game designer, podcaster, and engineer Jeff Engelstein told me. A big fan of Through the Ages, Engelstein delves deeply into the hows and whys of board game design on the Ludology podcast, which I hope you're listening to. In our interview, he focused on how games provide a framework for social intercourse that's missing from, for example, a cocktail party. What he said was, board gaming, at its essence, is a way of creating social interaction between people. Some may be cooperative, some may be super competitive, some may be thinky, some may be laugh riots, but you're basically setting the ground rules for how people interact with each other in a social setting. And that, Engelstein explained, is critical to people who may be more socially awkward or uncomfortable meeting new people. And that's a demographic long associated with nerdy hobbies like board gaming. Another academic who studied board gaming is Benjamin Wu, an assistant professor of communications and media studies at Carleton University in Canada. In his book, Getting a Life, The Social Worlds of Geek Culture, Wu found that the face-to-face -face nature of board gaming offers up a completely different dynamic from digital gaming. Wu, a pandemic fan, had this to say, the question of how they're expressed and experienced, that makes a big difference. It's really easy to see the return to analog tabletop games, to role-playing games, as a reaction against digital culture. To say, I'd much rather spend my time with someone because I feel like I'm staring at screens too much. That jibes with what I heard from Devin Trevelyan, the owner of Boston's two Night Moves board game cafes and a big fan of strategy-heavy games like Gaia Project, Gloomhaven, and the works of Stefan Feld. For an article in Scout Cambridge magazine, here's what he told me. It turns out the reason I've been able to stay in business for five years is that people crave face-to-face -face interaction, a social way to get together that doesn't really exist anymore. And he said there's evidence of this in the fact that people have come to Night Moves for first dates after meeting someone through an online dating service. I also visited Aeronaut Brewing Company in Boston, which has been holding a weekly board game night for almost two years. It was set up and is still run by volunteer organizer Christine Platchek. Every Monday, sometimes 50 or more gamers show up, grab a beer, sit down, and play games like Secret Hitler, Bonanza, or any of dozens of others that are available. In Platchek's experience, people are using it for its intended purpose, to develop friends. And it's that human element, it seems to me, that gets right down to the common denominator of my research. Whether it's to lift the veil that digital interaction leaves between us, or to offer a framework for how to get to know a new person, or simply to bring together people who have a similar idea of what fun is. The fact that board gaming brings actual human beings together in a room to spend time talking to one another, games like The Mind notwithstanding, that appears to be a major driver of the momentum behind the growth of our hobby during the digital era. I would love to hear your thoughts on this subject. You can share them with me on Twitter at EJFTweets, and you can learn more about my own game design work by following at Calligraphy Game on Twitter. Thanks for listening.
Hello and welcome everybody to the Board Game Sandbox. I'm going to be your host, Bill Lassick of Wandering Hearth Games, a design house out of Woodbridge, New Jersey. And here in the Board Game Sandbox, we're going to be talking about various topics that pertain to making a game, starting on your design or refining your design to the point where you can either publish it, put it on Kickstarter, or pitch it to another publisher. Um... When I joined our board game community four years ago when I formed my company, uh, I found that there was a multitude of resources, tools, uh, people, social media groups, programs, vlogs, blogs. All these things were available to me to learn on how to start making a game and how to refine the game to be something that people would want to play and buy. Um, but I'll be honest, uh, it took me four years to get my first game published. Uh, my first game, uh, Koi, uh, was just recently published this past November by Smirk and Laughter Games, and it's been doing quite well in stores, which is great. Um, but again, it took me four years to get there. And I think a lot of that was because even though there are so many resources and support groups and programs and things out there, that's part of the problem because it can get overwhelming. You have so many options. You don't know where to start. So hopefully by listening to this podcast, I'll be able to at least give you a few ideas of what to do and how to do it. Uh, at least from my perspective, so that you can get those games to the shelves. So uh, everybody can enjoy them, including myself, because I'd love to play them. Uh, so now for this episode, we're going to focus on the start. How do you start? Where do you start? Uh, a lot of people talk about two ways of starting a game, designing via mechanisms or designing via theme. And unfortunately, it's almost passed around like there's a duality. There's only two ways to do it. You can either design by a theme or design via mechanism. There's nothing else. And that's really incorrect. I think there is uh, almost an infinite way of starting your design. Uh, I'm going to talk about several here that uh, I'm aware of or I even use myself. Um, but just to give you different ideas you can have when you're starting to try and go from idea and put that idea uh, to pen and paper or mouse and computer, whatever you're more comfortable designing with. Uh, so... Let's start with the ones that are most talked about, uh, designing via theme and mechanisms. Uh, designing via theme. Uh, it's a really valid and good way to start designing a game. Basically, that simply means you're going to have a theme you want to make a game around. Maybe it's a theme you love or a theme that you think is unique. So you want to make a pirate game or a, a fantasy game or a zombie game. What I will say is if you're going to design via theme, or really if you're going to use any of these methodologies that I'm going to talk about, the first and foremost rule is once you kind of start forming your idea, try and make it as unique as possible. Uh, at Gen Con, there were 625 new to this world, never before seen games released. Then at Essen, uh, there was over 1,400 games new to this world released. So in just a few short months, 2,000 brand new games hit the market. Uh, that doesn't count for all of the other months of the year uh, that were Kickstarters and gamers releases. So simply put, it's a crowded market. I'm not going to say there's a bubble. There's no board game uh, bubble that's going to burst. Uh, it, it's a very large and growing industry, but it is competitive. So if you want your game to be uh, funded on Kickstarter or picked up by a publisher or, or sold at a mom and pop because you're self-publishing, 
you need to do your best to make it stand out. So if you're going to do a theme, try and make it as unique as possible. Like you can do what uh, Dan and Connie Kazmaier did with their game Chai. They made a game about tea, making tea for customers. And it's on Kickstarter. Or by the time you listen to this, it will have already funded on Kickstarter with over $80,000 raised uh, on a game about tea. And it's, I mean, it, the game is stunning. It's gorgeous. But what really sells it for me and a lot of people, I think, is the unique theme of making tea. Um, but your game doesn't have to have a unique theme. It can have a, a common theme like zombies. But try and take a unique twist on it. If you're going to make a zombie game, try and think what hasn't been done with zombies. Maybe you're going to do a zombie survival game but instead of the humans trying to survive zombies maybe you're playing zombies trying to survive humans i think it'd be a fun game and it's going to stand out because i can't think of a game that does that right now maybe there is one but i haven't heard of it yet now i'm going to go into mechanisms if you're going to design via mechanisms uh, this is probably the most used starting point uh basically there's going to be a, a, an idea a new idea you have in your head of how a game can play or what the wins conditions are or you're going to have uh, a situation where you love a game like uh, Lords of Waterdeep with worker placement or Dominion with uh, deck building. And you want to make a game similar to it, but with a twist. You may never even have to put theme on. If you make an abstract, sometimes abstracts never require a theme. Or you can be like uh, Dr. Rainer Knitza. He's made con uh, countless games uh, that have all been wonderful Euros. And he doesn't do anything with theme. He basically makes the game mathematically sound. Uh, he is in a good enough position where he can simply hand the game off to his team and they can theme it for him. But basically, he is able to design an entire game from start to finish without even worrying about theme once. Very few of us are going to be in that position. Uh, so what I would say is if you're going to design via uh, mechanism first, get the mechanism as robust as you need it to be. Uh, don't worry about putting a theme on it until you feel that it's required for your design uh, or, you or if it feels right. But again, if you're designing via mechanism, do your best to make the mechanism stand out. So it's not just another card uh, deck builder, but maybe it's a deck building area control game like Path of Light and, Light and Shadows has done. Um, make it unique. Make it stand out and it'll do well. Um, now, those are the two most common ways of designing games. Uh, the next one I'm going to go into is something uh, I heard Eric Lang does, which he's had countless multi-million dollar Kickstarters. Uh, and his games are great. And he, what he does uh, for some of his games is he tries to design for the moment. So he'll come up with uh, a moment in his head of something he wants to happen, uh, whether it's a moment of great elation or frustration or loss, whatever that is. And then he designs a game that will create that experience. Uh, so you look at uh, Godfather Corleone's Empire. Um, in that game, you don't simply uh, kill your your opponent's pawns. You take them and you throw their uh, 3D printed bodies in the river, and they stay on the game board floating. Um, so it, it's it's a much more powerful uh, elimination of a player piece because you literally see their uh, corpse floating in the water with the fishes, as it, as it were. Um, so he created those moments. Um, 
Brian Hinkwit New Salem, which is relaunching on Kickstarter for the expansion. Uh, actually should be on Kickstarter by the time you hear this. Uh, he designed New Salem to create people's reaction in a Puritan uh, environment where you're playing Puritans and some people are playing witches. And he wanted to have a game where people stood up at the table and was, you're a witch, and points those people out. Um, but in this uh, social deduction game, it, the game doesn't end when that happens. The player isn't eliminated. The game continues from that point on. But uh, So you can continue to claim someone's a witch, or they can claim you're a witch afterwards, and uh, you guys banter back and forward trying to gain control of the town uh, and win the game. So designing via the moment is really cool because the moments that are going to be the most powerful in your game that are going to create the biggest memories are some of the most important parts of your game design. So designing with that moment already in mind uh, could really help focus you on going through the uh, the rest of the steps it takes to make a game. Uh, one of the methods I use, which is uh, similar to designing for the moment, but a little bit of a broader brush, is what I used in Koi, is designing for the experience. Uh, so if you're going to design for the experience, you want to come up with a general general feel or experience that you want your players to go through so that as they're playing the game, it's what they feel and what they pull out of the experience of playing your game. Uh, so in Koi, in Koi is a one to four player light strategy game, competitive, where you are playing koi fish, trying to swim through a pond, uh, eating dragonflies and frogs worth various points. And, uh, even though it's competitive, what I wanted to have my players experience was a sense of tranquility because the inspiration for my game was my koi pond in my backyard. And yeah, there's these moments where the fish will be eating something or whether it's food I threw them or they're going to jump up and try and eat a bug that was uh, a little too close to the water for the bug's comfort. And yeah, there's some splashing and things that happen on, but as soon as the, the, the frenzy goes away, the water gets still again, and it becomes a very calming and tranquil experience. I wanted to convey that in the board game. Uh, so I knew what I wanted to do, uh, but I was trying to figure out how do you do that? Because in a competitive game, there's going to be a winner and a bunch of losers. And uh, it's very hard to have a tranquil Zen experience when people have lost something. So I came up with the idea of, well, maybe they still gain something in the process. So first and foremost with my game, I wanted it to to be uh, an art piece, a kinetic art piece, that as the game continued through all seven rounds or days as they're called in the game, uh, the board would get more and more interesting, more and more beautiful because as people are playing cards to move their fish around the board and score points, they're also playing these natural beauty cards, which are adding things like watercolor cherry blossoms or lily pads to the board or these uh, nice wooden frogs or decorative stone. Uh, so by the end of the game, there's all these extra tokens that are, weren't on the board when you started, but now they're on the board at the last round. So even someone that's lost the game can look at the board, even though their score might not be that high, they can still look at the board and go, wow, I created part of this art that's on the table in front of us and take some pride and reflection and joy in the fact that they created something that you can take pictures of, remember, uh, put it on Instagram. That's that works great for me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, basically they've created something. So even though they lost, they gained something, they've gained uh, a moment of art. Um, so that's what I did with my game, uh, to create that experience of tranquility of Zen. Um, but 
definitely consider this because it is a, a, a valid but not always used way of designing games is for the experience. Um, now, uh, next one I'm going to go through is one I heard from Gabe Barrett of the Board Game Design Lab. Uh, he came up with designing via name, uh, coming up with a really cool name that's just really catchy or uh, that might have some uh, good uh, Google juice behind it, meaning it's good. Uh, it'll be easily searchable or show up uh, uniquely on Google when you're trying to find it, or Board Game Geek is the case maybe. Uh, so the thing here is come up with a really cool name and then let your game flow from there. So everyone's heard of Call of Cthulhu. Maybe you want your game to be called the Phone Call of Cthulhu. Well, what kind of game would a Phone Call of Cthulhu be? Well, maybe it's social deduction. Maybe you're trying to get a message from one room with one person to another room with a different person. And maybe there's cards involved that will modify people's messages along the way. And you're trying to figure out who is in league with the ancient old ones and who's not insane. Um, don't know where it goes, but starting with a name could create some interesting questions in your head. Uh, so designing via name, try it. Think about it. It's really cool. Uh, next one I'm going to go in is, is designing via publisher. Uh, if you're going to design via publisher, this could be a really good way to start for a new designer. Go to publisher's website. These are the people that you're going to try and pitch your game to. Um, like uh, Stonemeyer Games or Jellybean Games. They don't have simple little paragraphs. They have web pages dedicated to what they're looking for. Uh, the game length, the game type, the game scope, uh, player count. Um, all the restrictions um, or opportunities, you can call them, on their website can help give you ideas to focus uh, your concept, your idea of what you want to create. Uh, for instance, if you're going to try and get a game published with Smirk and Laughter Games, um, it needs to be emotionally uh, evocative. If you're going to try and get a game published with Smirk and Dagger Games, it's got to be a take that game. Consider it think about it and uh, maybe this is a, a way for you to start um, but these are some of the ways that you can start your board game design but the most important thing is to start uh, I see a lot of people struggle on where to start uh, whether one of these methods works or a combination combination of these methods works for you give it a try uh, but the most important thing is pick up the pen start putting pen to paper pick up the mouse start moving things around on the keyboard because I think you'll be really pleased if once you start, uh, you're going to see the rest of your ideas start flowing uh, onto the screen or onto the paper. And by the end of it, you're going to have a great game. So uh, hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Uh, I can be reached on Twitter at Bill Lassick or Facebook at Bill Lassick. I look forward to hearing from you. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. Check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters, Chris Turner, Alan D. Eckert, Brad Batchelor, and Roscoe Shop. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at thebgworkshop and on Facebook at theboardgameworkshop. And join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can get links to all of these and the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.